Hey there. Quick announcement before we get into today's show. Niagara Moon is playing with Professor Sweater and Jordan Lowe at the High Dive in Fremont this Sunday, October 8th at 8 p.m. Tickets are $6 in advance, $8 at the door, 21 plus only. I put the link to buy tickets in the episode description. If you're in Seattle, come check us out. You are listening to Talking About the Passion. I'm Thomas Irwin. This is a podcast where I interview different creative individuals in the world of music. As for myself, I'm a singer-songwriter and producer who goes by Niagara Moon. If you want, you can look up more about my own music at niagaramoonmusic.com. For episode 39, we have Tristan. I am super excited about this one. Tristan is definitely one of my top favorite singer-songwriters working today. I've enjoyed her music immensely since finding out about her about two years ago. I got her to come over for an interview. I tried not to be a total fanboy and uh, try to have it be an interesting discussion. I was a little nervous, a little intimidated. It's a little weird when one of your uh, musical idols comes to hang out in your living room, but uh, she was super engaging, easy to talk to. It was a total blast, and I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, To give you some more info on Tristan, uh, she is originally from the Chicago area, but has been based down in Nashville for about a decade. I mean, you can read her Wikipedia page for all the info, but suffice to say that all her work has received a ton of praise. She tours with Jenny Lewis. I mean, she's the real deal. Tristan came out with her third album, Sneaker Waves, earlier this year. So she was on tour to promote that, and I got to see her play at the Vera Project with Jenny O. Uh, But anyway, before my interview with Tristan, I'm going to play you a track from her new album, Sneaker Waves. This song is called Glass Jar.
played Blown in the Wind in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and it cleared the room. <laughs> and I was like, did I just clear the room with a Bob Dylan song? You mean and that they weren't having was it? outside going saying something about Trump. I don't know if it was just like a coincidence okay. or something. The show was still really good, and I'm just joking and exaggerating, but I f- do feel like when I started playing that song, it was like, oh, God, politics. There was some tension. Yeah. <laughs> oh, demanding, demanding that, you know, we uh, absol- dissolve this construct that we all live with. Wow. I guess it's kind of weird to think that songs like that are starting to have the same kind of power again now that they had back in the 60s. It's true. I think in Fayetteville, Arkansas, although Fayetteville is a very cool town, and I did see a lot of Bernie signs in Fayetteville when I played there during the election, but the guy that has us play there is really funny because he's like, yeah, there's about 90 people that come see live music, and he, like, knows all of them. <laughs> yeah, it's he, one community. Yeah, it's one community. He's like, yeah, we had some cool local bands, and then they moved on, and so now we, you know, we lost 10 people that come to live shows. It's a very small town, and um, this one person, Roger Barrett, is, he does this festival there called On the Map, and it's, anyway, he, he's like, it's one guy that cares and creates... Um, live music and curates these shows and so we played a show there on this tour and it was awesome and the opener was from Little Rock, Arkansas and he was great Isaac Alexander it's like it's cool wow it's really tight knit it's almost kind of like playing a a house show I would imagine totally do you do a lot of those too? not a lot but lately I've been doing some I'm doing some in November but we're doing an acoustic tour and so it was kind of conducive I didn't want to go hit these same cities with uh, without the band because we've just already done this yeah. show with the band. It's the way it wanted it to be presented with the new record. So we're going to hit a, a couple of cities again with doing more like private house shows, but it's really the first time. And then we're opening for Robin Hitchcock for four shows. Oh, I like yeah, him. He's amazing. Wow. So you're in the middle of uh, this tour right now for Sneaker Waves. How many weeks has it been? We're... Directly in the middle, so I just looked at the schedule, so we're like right in the middle, and it's about f- a little over four weeks, so wow. yeah, it's a long one. I usually try to keep it at three and a half weeks max, just be- for like morale and health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think Jenny O, who's touring with us, said it best when she said, uh, vibe and safety. Those are the most important things on tour, vibe and safety. <laughs> and so I do my best. <laughs> so that would mean you have like two weeks left or mm-hmm. something? How do you keep momentum going when you're you're right in the middle of it and just night after night constantly traveling? Like, uh, I mean. It's not natural. <laughs> it's not natural at all. Um, if you think about propelling yourself through how unnatural just driving that far in a day and then playing and drive. You know, human beings, we're not supposed to travel that way. We're supposed to, like, walk to the grocery store and back. I mean, that's not even natural either, but we're we're, uh, supposed to stay in, like, a little area. And then, and I always think I would never subject a pet to my lifestyle. And so when you start thinking you wouldn't subject an animal to it, but then you want people to be in your band, you're like, (laughs) all right, I better take it easy on them. (laughs) Because you have to really give up... uh, when you go on tour, you it's 24 hours a day, you know, for weeks. And so if you have a significant other at home. So you ask people to really give up their lives for like an hour of playing music at night. And if you're lucky, a good sound check, which is about 20 or 30 minutes. 
And if you're really good at it, you figure out ways backstage to like play. But you don't get to play a lot of music on the road either. So it's a lot of, it's a lot more, I think it gets easier, obviously, the more uh, popular you get and the more people that are at your shows, then you can have a little bit longer sound checks and figure things out, especially if you're on a bus. I toured with Jenny Lewis on a bus. And so you wake up in the city and then you kind of have free reign of sound check. I was I would always go in early to sound check and like take it half hour, 45 minutes yeah. to play what I wanted to play. But it's really hard to like even get better at music on the road because you're just so busy keeping everything together. Keeping the schedule. Mm-hmm. It's Driving. I heard someone describe it as... You're playing for free. They're just paying you to travel. Correct. I mean, it really does work out. It's funny because we talk about, like, where these arbitrary numbers come from that you get paid per night. And we don't think that the wage for an opening band has gone up in 30 years. Oh, my God. (laughs) We do think it's just stayed about the same. It's like a lot of other industries. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't matter, like, how big the headlining artist is. For some reason, the wage for the opener has stayed the same, and the hope is that the more people, the more merch will sell. And luckily, you know, we can convert audiences and we can work an audience to, like, come to us, even if they're not our audience. So it works out fine for us, but... On the flip side of that, we also have gotten to travel and we get to, um, we have like a really interesting lifestyle and so it's very exciting. Lots of adventure. Lots of adventure and it's hard work, but I mean, this is like something at the core of like having a fulfilling life or like feeling good and at the core of that, like I'm reading a book by Albert Einstein, which is, I can't remember the title, but it's him looking back later in life. It's a very famous book. I don't know why I'm forgetting it, but... He talks about finding work that is that you're passionate about. And so we have this industrial society where we've specialized every human being to have like a very specific thing that they do over and over and over again for efficiency. Yeah. And the problem with that is human beings are actually very diverse. We like to do a lot of different things. We don't really want to do one menial task. We want to find different things to do throughout the day that, that feed us and like make something and it's done now and let's look at what we made and that kind of thing. I think that having work that you feel passionate about and that you don't mind working 13 hours a day, we work every day. So it's really hard for us to like find even people that work in the music business to, it's hard for us because we work so hard all the time that we expect that out of everybody else. And they're like, it's the weekend, don't call me. And we're like, what, <laughs> like, what are you oh, talking it's the about? weekend? Oh, cool. I have like one day off in the next month, you know. But at the same time, like, you know, I get seven hours in the car to read whatever I want, you know, tweet whatever I want. And so like you're saying, you have work that you're passionate about. You're never bored, I imagine. No. And you don't ever kind of question what you're doing with your life or whatever. You're always Oh, I question it. Well, I mean, you're always, you're making such an effort to do the thing that you care about doing most so you're not like uh, so many people that are like, what do I really want to do? Uh-huh. That sort of thing. Totally. Yeah. And the only time I ever feel bored is when I'm depressed, and so it's mostly just like a mood anxiety problem rather than a actual – I think that's like a symptom of depression, right, De- bo- feeling right. bored. You don't get any joy out of activities that you'd normally like to do or whatever. Yeah, I but I think that mostly when I'm bored, it's because I don't, I don't know. I have a lot of other hobbies that I like to do that aren't music that um, I can get away from. So 
I think it's just about, I'm just a hobby person. I've just always been that way. I always had hobbies and projects and been able to make my own projects for myself. Like my father is really funny because he just bought um, a Trident A-Range console and it's a console from the 70s. It's like a boat, like some some middle-aged men have like crises where they buy like a vintage nice recording car. gear yeah. that costs like thousands of dollars. Yeah. He works really hard. My dad, like my dad works for the FAA and he's a flight inspector. And he, before that he installed radios and airplanes. So he worked, he's worked he's his whole life. He's a technician. Yes. And he's worked his whole life and he's a really great musician. Um, and he worked his whole life to provide for us and give me like an opportunity to be and do what I do right now. Um, totally. But so in his, in his midlife crisis, he bought this like giant console and he took it all apart and re- he's rewiring everything. He's making it perfect. And he called me and he was like, oh, I was so stressed out of like what I was thinking. He's like in his basement working on it for days. And I was like, oh, you love that? Don't <laughs> don't even try. Like you're, I know you you think that you're like stressed right now, but you really actually love it. And I know that because I'm the same way, like having some dumb project that I take on some, and it's not dumb, but it's, uh, it's, it does seem kind of pointless in, in some ways when I take on projects, but I like the end when I look at it and I go, oh, I yeah. Like that. yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. cool. Yeah, it's a rush, it's a high, it's a dopamine shot to the brain. But it's, like, healthy. <laughs> and a Trident console, I mean, I don't know, I feel like that's worth a lot more than some random guitar. I think it is, too. A lot, of, a lot think, of usage out of that. And and guitars and instruments are actually, they appreciate better. I shouldn't be telling people this, but they appreciate more than, like, money. So you're probably better off investing in, like, rubies or trident consoles okay now he's he's an engineer and he um he bought a tape machine and he ever since I was a little kid we had a recording place to record and so I got that kind of um understanding that you need to know the tools to do what you need to do and be self-sufficient and so I learned that from him and then um I started with an mbox mini and now I'm on to like a very simple demoing setup but I record by myself and that's where a lot of my ideas come from in the beginning, but yeah, he's, he's, um, he's just really into the sound of a console and having those compressors in there and like rigging everything up and then just going. And he's always had a studio. And so he's like decking it out. I, he told me he secretly wants me to come make my records there, but uh, we'll see. Cause right now you're mostly recording at home. Mm-hmm. Take it. So you learned a lot about how to set up a home studio from him. Yes. I learned a lot about doing it myself, starting my own business when I was young, like looking at it like that, like how do I make enough money to hire musicians and how do I make a record? And we made music together and made recordings together when I was younger. And so when I moved to Nashville, I had a little inbox, inbox mini and a computer and I just made demos. And actually the record that I made is not very good, but it's up on the internet. You can like you mean the very first one? Yeah, teardrops and lollipops. It's like a demo record. You can really, you can tell, <laughs> but people really like it. I think it's unlistenable. But I think it's raw. That yeah, sort of they thing. like it. The songs are good. There's some lyrics that are okay in there that should be fixed that I've thought about changing. But then I'm like, I'm not gonna mess with that old stuff. But it's okay. But it's up there because why not? Right. At this point, it's like fine. Somebody will like it. I was 25, you know, I was young. Or I was 24 when I made it. And I've considered that to be pretty early in 
the process of me learning how to like create something start to finish as as a musician has taken me a while to figure that out. Yeah. There's so much that goes into making an album beyond just knowing how to write the songs. It's like that's where you start, but then it's what instruments are playing on it, how do I arrange that, how do I make everything sound, how do I communicate what I'm looking for to other people playing with me, and then the whole mixing thing. And yes. you go through that process once, and you're like, oh, all these things that I can kind of factor in the next time I, I go through this. And then you just run in different problems the next time. <laughs> <laughs> you get more and more ambitious. Mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, more and more ambitious, different time constraints based on budgets and mm. um, deadlines and who you're working with at the time, like musicians, and taking care of people that are in your touring band by including them in the recording process, but also not limiting what you can do when you live in a city like Nashville where there's a lot of different musicians that you want to include. Yeah. And so uh, it's kind of like a process of... We've gotten it down to a pretty good process, but everybody's different. That's the thing. It's like nowadays there's all this pressure to do everything. And Wear all the hats. Yeah, like you have to be a singer, a really good singer, and a really good songwriter, and you have to be an instrumentalist. And I think there's a lot of prejudice against just singers. There's like so much that goes into being a good singer and also a communicator. And like a great voice is enough. And mm. 30 years ago... People would surround that and push that. And now it's like, well, you know, do you play an instrument? Okay, well, let me be pressured to be an instrumentalist. Even though, you know, for me, I, I can, I like to play guitar and piano and and I can strum and stuff. And I use those as a vehicle to be a better writer and like understanding how bass lines work with chord progressions and tension and all that stuff. Um, but that's the only purpose I've seen for learning instruments is, and recording as well is like a vehicle for the songs that I write. And luckily when I met Buddy Hewen, who's my um, co-producer, engineer, mixer, and lead guitar player and husband, um, <laughs> when we started working together, we didn't like have all that figured out. But over time, you sort of realize, okay, well, this person's really good at engineering and he can eventually mix records and I'm really good at writing songs and I can write a song like if I try so I'll focus on becoming a better writer and that involves reading and that involves like having something to talk about and for me it's like reading poetry and writing all the time and like thinking about words and stuff like that so we kind of developed a process where I still have the freedom to get my ideas out and I have a avenue for that. And then I kind of let him get his ideas out and I don't bother him because he doesn't really work well when someone's watching him. So he yeah, does his, yeah. Typical mixer. Yeah, he's like, yeah, exactly. He True. He also uh, records a lot by himself and makes his own songs. So it's like I'll just hand him the song and he can, we, get, we do drums and bass tracking together. And then usually the drums and bass are done to whatever ideas I already have. And then he'll overdub his ideas and then I'll come back and check everything. And then um, maybe I'll add something else or maybe some key parts. And then we'll go to mix and arrange. And then that's a point in time where I kind of get final say. He usually does his final say. And then I come in and I say, okay, well, I don't like this and this and this. And I'll do like the final nitpicking of arranging. And then we'll collaborate a little bit in there. And then for mixing, I let him do a mix by himself. 
and he does all the technical work that's actually like painting, almost like creating depth and all these things. It's a whole craft unto itself. It is. It's insane. I don't know how he does it. It's a mystery to me, and I'm okay with it. (laughs) But then I come in at the end with pretty specific thoughts. I like really like drums to be a lot quieter than a lot of modern mixing. Um, I have a really strong leaning towards making tones a lot darker than most pop guys would. You sound like my mixing engineer. (laughs) Yeah, and people argue with me. They argue with me so much. I had like a manager at one point like secretly go behind my back and tell the mixer mixer to to put high end in everything. And then he sent me this, like, secretly did this radio mix. It just, like, chopped half the song. I'm like, <laughs> could you just talk to me? Like, I can edit a radio edit. I underst- I can, like, do that in a way that doesn't sound like you literally, like, selected all the tracks and did, like, control E <laughs> and then just, like, scooted everything over and doesn't sound, it sounds insane. Wow. You're, like, weird stuff that managers should never do, but they do because they think you won't notice, but... They learn quickly with me that I'm like, if it anything is more discerning. It's just anything that's representing me, like I have to be super um, involved in. Yeah, that's part of the art, how you present yourself. I think that I don't know. I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or what, but I think that it's, it's, or maybe it's hard for men too to like deal with people telling them how they should do things. But I've gotten really good explaining why. So I just very clear. Yeah, just have to explain myself. So kind of going back to recording, the new album, Sneaker Waves, um, compared to your previous release, Caves, which uh, had a lot more synths, kind of synth-pop elements, you seem to be going back to a kind of rootsier 60s retro rock sound. Did you hear the first, uh, did you hear Charlatans at the Carnegie, the very first album? Yeah, and that is, uh, I'm a big fan of that one. And that's your most like, uh, Charlatans is like the straightforward kind of bluesy, folky rock thing. Uh And I feel like Sneaker Waves is more of that sort of sound, Mm -hmm. but kind of the 60s pop thing going on too. I don't know if... uh, I'm I'm curious to... I mean, that's my own interpretation of it, but I'm curious to hear what uh, where you think it sits in your catalog, like when you were going about making it. Sure. How you uh, thought your fans would uh, react to it. Well, so the, my very first record, Charlatans, went in with 23 songs over like two and a half years. I'd write them and then go and record with Jeremy Ferguson at Battle Tapes. And I didn't have a band, and I would pull in anybody I could that I was meeting in Nashville in those two years. And it was my first time really trying to make a record, and I was like super intense about making sure it was exactly how I wanted to be. And I consider that to be like my 60s girl group, rock and roll, country album, right? Yeah. That was like I was really into um, – traditional country music at the time. But I've always been a huge Beatles fan and, you know, the Shirelles and... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was that record. Um, I was really happy with that record. We had a lot to work from and we picked the best stuff and kind of like it just... People loved it. And at the time, I was playing a ton of shows. Like all the time I was playing live, any show in Nashville, like I guess it said yes to everything. So those songs were kind of born out of the live show. Yeah. And then a live band working in new drummers every month, you know, just chaos. Very piecemeal. Yes. Patching things together. Yeah, I'll take any gig and then I'll figure out the band later. Yeah, yeah. And then trying to teach people and then trying to be a band leader and not knowing what I'm doing, just like stumbling drunkenly. And that was like a big party phase for me. And (laughs) And then that album does really well. 
and everybody loves it. And I could give a shit about what people liked. I just thought, oh, You're making cool. it for yourself. Yeah. I, I, well, I mean, I, I loved that people liked it, but when I went to make my next record, I did not consider what people that people would be attached to a sound. Like it didn't enter into my mind. Yeah. You're like, I tried that, now I'm trying this. Yeah. Well, honestly, what happened is my uh, my record label cut tour support, and I had to go on tour with me and Buddy, and I had all these songs that depended on drums, which I was writing a lot of the drum beats, and they were very important. So we were like, all right, fine, cool. And we got a drum machine and we put it through an amp and Buddy programmed all the beats and we would play to a drum machine every night for months. We went on tour like this and it sounded cool. So we got into this drum machine phase. At the same time, I got an M Audio Venom given to me by M Audio. And this is a keyboard that didn't really last. Um, mm, it was yeah, just around for a little bit of time and they gave me one and it had all these beats. You could slow them down, speed them up, you could take parts of the beat out and had all these digital synthesizers on there pre-programmed and you could actually make your own. You could, that sounds pretty handy. It's, pre- it's pretty great. I unfortunately plugged it in with the wrong power thing and it's gone now. <laughs> I'm going to fix out. it. It's in the graveyard of instruments in my house. But anyway, so so then you get that instrument and, and, and I'm naturally more of a keyboard player than a guitar player, although I'm better at guitar now than I've ever been. Um, and so I wrote a lot. Of, I said, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a synth record and I sat in there and got all these beats off this venom and slowed them down and added all this stuff and got, I had this Lowry keyboard and I was like super into the Lowry. It's all over that record. It's like on every song. Mm. And I was playing that and I, all synth songs and like these crazy beats. And I had this guy, Donnie Schroeder in my band, who was really into the SBDSX and all these other, he was like really techie drummer and because so he came in after the duo tour and then I made that record so it had nothing to do with what was going on with charlatans or what that record sounded like I hadn't even analyzed that I was just sort of on this whatever instruments were laying around and whatever wherever headspace was in and I I love Kate Bush and Madonna and a lot of pop music from the 80s and Echo and the Bunnymen and so we made that record like that and then I I had this opportunity. I was funded to get a really great mixer, and I had this opportunity to work with a great mixer, and I I found Stephen Haig, who's done OMD and Pet Shop Boys and is like a legendary mixer. And I pulled him in to mix the record, and it was very minimalist. Like a lot of my records are very minimal. I consider them to be minimalist. There's not too many parts going on. Right, and I arrange it. So there might be a lot, as a whole, a lot of things going on, but they come in and out. And there's only enough space for what there's space for. And I like a lot of space. And I like simple melodies that repeat, you know. Anyway, uh, so I brought Stephen Hagen. He said, sure, I'll mix the record. And then he put all kinds of stuff on it. And so he would send him back, like, with different percussion. I remember telling the manager story earlier. Yeah. All kinds of stuff on it. And I, and actually he made it sound amazing. And I was like, holy shit, this sounds nothing like what I did. I kind of love it. And so I went in this process of collaboration with him at the very end of making the record where I had to then meld what I was doing with this mixer who said he was a mixer, but then turns out he's a producer and Mm. he wants to, that's what he does. And if I wanted to work with him, I had to collaborate and I was fine with it at the time because when I didn't really know how to finish the record the way that I know how to do now, like now I could have taken the record that we had and just finished it at the time 
what seemed like a deadline because I had a major label deal that fell through happening. So I felt like we were on a deadline. And so anyway, long story short or long story long, uh, he put a bunch of stuff on it and we navigated that collaboration and that's Caves, which I love that record, but I'll never be able to make that record again. It's like a very specific moment in time. So then flash forward to Sneaker Waves. This is the story of how these things happen. And I'm touring with a four-piece band, Core Four, and we had to interpret Caves and figure out how to do it as a four-piece band, which is a whole, it's like producing a whole other record. I didn't want to do that again. So I went into making Sneaker Waves thinking about my live band, thinking about what I like to play when when I write the song, and getting back to the pure form of like, when I write the song, if I'm playing guitar, then I want the song to be around me on the guitar. And if I'm playing keys, I want to be around me and the keys. I don't want to hand my children over to all these men and have them do their thing, even though it makes for a good collaboration. Because at the end of the day, I need to, I need to be able to play my songs and like have them translate live because the live show is really a huge part of my identity as an artist. That's your bread and butter in some ways. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you're not. uh, I mean, just having seen you at the Vera Project and how much you seem to relish being on stage and being a performer. I mean, you're not a a Brian Wilson hold up in the studio making intricate, very layered pop records and not performing them out much. So you're, uh, you wanted to take advantage of your strengths in that way. That yeah, and we're like. limited, you know. We're like, a, we're like a van band. We're not a bus band. So when you're in a van band and there's four people, you have to think about that. And you have to have those limitations. I mean, Brian Wilson was funded in a huge way and a very he, huge way. <laughs> and he had like the best of the best and he was a genius and so that's a, just a different thing to work with um I do enjoy being home like I, I like to um garden and I like to cook and I like to read and take baths and work on music by myself all day long and there's no better feeling than like finishing a, a song and being like that's going to be on the record and it's going to work but, you know, we shoot in the dark. For Sneaker Waves, we went in with 33 songs. You did. Yeah. You and narrowed it down <laughs> to a third of that. Yeah, we that have a lot of do. them. It, it's funny because at the end, we sort of narrowed it down to like seven songs. And we were like, all right, let's write three more. And then we went back and picked some other ones back out. But we have a lot of material that hasn't been released. And so it's just about having the time to finish it and make it make sense in a release because that's the other part of it. It's like figuring out what you're doing at the end. Yeah, what's the finished product? Yeah, what is this record and what's it What's it about and what's the vibe and what are we doing? Because you don't want to be – you can go in with a concept, but we didn't go in with a concept. We went in with a non-concept. It's like let the songs decide and follow the flow and then see where we're at after. So with the the songs on the new album – when you're writing them and starting to record them, was there a standard process that would happen? or? Well, it starts with me writing the song and demoing it. And then lately we've been, I'll play live and sing live with the drums and the bass and we'll track those together. In your home studio? In my home studio. And then um, that my, my guitar and singing will be a scratch track. And then we will bring in whoever to play on it. Um, mostly Buddy gets first shot at putting down his guitar parts. He's like a melody man. A lot of those guitar melodies, most, I don't think there's any guitar melodies on that record that he didn't write unless it's me playing. And um, 
Then after that, if something else is needed, maybe strings, uh, I write the string arrangements, although Buddy did write a couple string arrangements on this record, um, but mostly the string arrangements are mine, and then we'll bring in people to cut those, and then we'll do vocals last, and then we go into mixing, which a lot of times in mixing we take out a lot of stuff, so yeah. That's kind it's of the kind process. of a subtractive process at that point. Oh yeah, deconstructing, reconstructing, and also um, our new thing is um, something we've only been able to do in the last year is once working on one song to finish. Finish instead of like I would bring in everybody, right, and do all the things at once, and then everything else, and it it didn't, it just didn't function that way. I think a lot of songs get lost because. Um, it's all based on feeling and inspiration, and the best thing I've, the thing I'm trying to capture is the momentum and the inspiration. When I first write a song, I sing it a certain way when I first write it, and I can never recapture that. So these demos I make actually are sometimes like the best vocal performances of anything. So I'm just trying to figure out how to be so self-sufficient that when I'm writing a song, I can record it in the moment of inspiration, finish it, and buddy in the last three years, four years, has really focused on being good at mixing and engineering. And he's been making records for other people um, and successful records. And um, so he is a really important piece of that puzzle. And so together, we don't really have a house. We just have a studio and like a bedroom and a kitchen. And we just kind of like have the same priorities. (laughs) That works out. Wow. So it sounds like as you go along, you're just going to get more and more efficient and be able to capture things really quickly and just get the source the way you need it. Yeah. That's really that's cool. The, that's the goal. So. I also kind of had a question about hooks. All the songs on the new album are really strong, but something about Glass Jar in particular, which I know you made into the big single. You know, I heard it once in passing, or maybe just part of it once in passing, and then I heard it again a few days later, and then it was just a total earworm. Yay! It was not leaving my brain. Um, I was curious to know, while you were writing that song in particular, if you knew, like, ah, oh, this is the one that'll get him this time, or... No, like, it's funny, though, you know right after. You're like, oh, I did it. <laughs> like, what do you think makes a hook a hook? Like, what do you think really draws the listener in Well, I do this much? interesting side job where I evaluate songs, and um, I teach like the hook. And I say that it's a clever, unique, rhyming line that is the main idea of the song. So that's what a hook is. And usually a hook comes at the end of the chorus. Now I'm telling you these things because I can observe them. That's not how I write. How I write is very flow in the moment. Like right. I just have it, it happens. Yes, yeah. it's subconscious, I'm pulling from something. And it works. But I'll tell you, the idea of the glass jar was on my mind for months because I finally figured out the metaphor for the way you feel when someone knows a lot about you and don't know a lot about them and they come to you in a first interaction, which is new to you, and they've got an agenda and you can't escape whatever it is they think about you. Like no matter how nice you are or sweet you are or disarming you are, they've got something they have to get out on you that is based on their idea of you. And also the idea of being in a relationship where you're trapped, where someone thinks you're a certain way and you can't. It reminds me of that um, when you're in, I don't know if they still do it, but in grade school we had to collect bugs, put them in a jar, 
put a, a cotton ball of alcohol in there and kill them. Yeah, I think they stopped <laughs> doing that around my time. Right? They morbid, and then they, they then you'd stab them onto a piece of paper, and you'd have the I don't the bug collection. That was the same idea, or like when you trap a spider in your house in a jar, and you're like, tap, 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 what are you going to do? Yeah, you're just this creepy, passive observer. Yes. And they can see you, and you can see them, and something's happening. It's almost like God, when God makes a choice. Well, I mean, this is, it's like um, the theme of Game of Thrones, which is that any moment God can come and just take you away. And that's life. And that's the sneaker waves theme as well. The wave comes and sweeps you away. And it makes no sense. You cannot control or predict. But I guess it's that idea that there are things happening, like people pass away, people are ripped out of life. And, um, it's the t- it's I experienced an earthquake for the first time in LA five days ago. There was a three point five. Oh and it was, yeah, I think I heard about that. And we were really close to the epicenter because I, in one jolt, felt the entire earth shake, and I <laughs> squealed, you know. And um, anyway, we were with a friend and we were just jumped. It was crazy, but it's those moments where something powerful is tapping on the glass. And you realize you're sort of powerless to whatever forces. You know, you can try to control and control and, like, do all these th- things that don't mean anything. But at the end of the day, every now and then you, you get, like, shaken in your jar. So anyway, that this image was, like, playing out yeah. to me, like, constantly. And I finally wrote the song. And I, I said to Buddy, I, I said, I... I think I just wrote the single that we needed for this album because we had the album, we didn't have the single, even though a lot of them are ending up to be singles now. They're, um, they're all pretty, a lot of them are pretty catchy, but um, it just works. I don't know why. I don't know how. But if you try hard enough at something every day and you focus on it, eventually you'll get a couple of things. Yeah, you strike gold That's once right. in a while. I had a question about another song, so I... I love how you uh, closed your set the other night with Psychic Vampire. Yeah. You got everybody around the stage. Yeah. Very intimate performance. I came away from it still not being quite sure what a psychic vampire is. I don't know if you'd like to elaborate more on that. A psychic vampire is someone who doesn't have their own light that they're following. And so they thrive on sort of sucking the air out of the room, whatever it is. If you have something to give, they'll take it. And they're hard to detect at first because... At first, they just seem really sweet and nice, but then, you know, months later, you'll walk, you'll be talking to them, and you'll hear them repeat something that you say, you mm. say all the time, and you're like, wait, you can't say that to me. That's what I say. No, and then all of a sudden, they start to dress like you and look like, you know, I'm just kidding. It's like single white female. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, actually, that song is, um, it's about a narcissist on their worst day ever. It's about all the bad characteristics of the ego and how the ego plays out. I think the ego is kind of the plague of our culture. And I think a lot of issues even in politics where everybody sort of like fight starts fighting is when people start to go, but me, me, I can't fathom how I could be open and accepting of these opinions I don't share. And it's the same thing with music too and people that create. Once you create all the time, and you get older, you start to realize that opinions are just so useless. 
and that they, and that everybody's got one, and that some people in self-importance. Anyway, so I'm digressing off, but I think the psych, psychic vampire thing is about um, somebody that's on their own trip, and that you're always just going to be a pawn in their trip, and. It's the worst traits of every person I know. I kind of just took the worst traits. And also, I really like burn songs, sick burn songs. Like, yeah, songs diss that songs. Just, yeah, diss songs. It just, just like burns some, like roast someone so badly. And you're like, ooh, yeah, man. I, I, did was... get, I did have that takeaway that this is directed towards somebody or a specific kind of person in particular. Kind of person. I'm always, okay, so I'm very into mythology and symbols, and this is why I love Game of Thrones so much. And I know it's very popular to like Game of Thrones, but I do think it's going to be as legendary as Star Wars because it covers the hero narrative. And it covers these sort of archetypes and narratives that human beings play out. And it's part of like the broth of our society that we're just like soaking in. And anyway, I think that the psychic vampire is somebody we all know. I mean, we all have had a friend who who we realize is just like draining us. And that word, in, in fact, which is pretty funny, is we would say call people psychic vampires when we're being nasty, you know, mm. you know, talking shit, and um, say, "Oh, that person, what a psychic vampire!" And then I was like, "I have to write this song," and then even not realizing it's definitely a word that people use all the time like you can look it up people talk about it psychic vampire um but i think it's more about um not knowing who you are and feeding off other people and um lacking empathy seems lacking to. empathy and being obsessed with drama it's like we all have our moments we all working together when you life is collaborative that's the other thing my other message is like so this individualist propaganda. Life is collaborative from the day you wake up. I don't know if you guys had mom and dad or brother and sister, but I pretty much feel like from the day I was born, I had to figure out how to navigate everyone's issues. And then you, you go to school, and then you're thrown into society. And then you get a job, and you have to figure out how to navigate having a boss and having coworkers and then you go, or you go to school, and you figure out how to have teachers. And you know, so everything's collaborative. And so this idea of self-importance and ego and fevered egos. I mean, I work in show business, so I'm just surrounded by fevered egos. <laughs> That's your everyday. That's the Bill Hicks. Fevered egos uh, tainting the collective unconscious. That's his, <laughs> um, his sort of thing. And I, I believe that. I believe that the ego is the biggest problem with the way people think, vote, act, um, and I and I'm not saying that from a place of self righteousness because I battle with my own ego constantly every day. It's a discipline for me. Hey, everybody does. Yeah, I know that. In addition to writing music, you've also uh, written a lot of poetry. At a chapbook, Saturnine, mm -hmm. come out last year. Mm -hmm. You probably get this question pretty often, but uh, is there a way that you approach writing poems versus? Lyrics and like, do you know from the get go what's going to be what, or do they? Is there a crisscross too? It's something a mess. starts out one way and becomes something else. It's a mess. I don't think I've really figured out how to do poetry yet, but I'm trying. Um, I think for music, I came at it at such a young age, and I started writing songs when I was 14. So. You have before, years of experience. Well, before I even knew what real what good music was. 
I was writing, and so the process of doing that was so natural to me. And it, there's not a lot of, at that time, there wasn't a lot of pressure put on um, what I was doing. And so I was in a vacuum, and I figured out how to create that way. The poetry thing, I think, came from having a lot of stuff I was writing that I didn't want to make it into something repetitive. And I also feel that in poetry, you can be dark, you can be political. You're not trying to deliver it in a room full of people drinking. It's, it's true. People are so much more receptive to a poet, to listen to a poet. I mean, my girlfriend uh, goes to poetry slams, and the atmosphere there compared to a music open mic could not be more different. It's very pretentious, the poetry <laughs> community. <laughs> but it's, um, and it's, it's like, ooh. You know, you guys can't see me, but I'm like tugging. You're pulling the collar. I'm tug. I'm pulling my collar out and like breathing heavy. Um, and I understand that because it's serious, and you can be really serious. And so with music, I have to take into consideration that I'm going to have to play a live set, and I think about my live set. I think about what are the upbeat songs, what songs people get people going, and I really do pay attention to the audience and. Every show is really determined by the audience. Tailoring it to them. Yeah, and if I get a lot back, I give, and I'll just be drained afterwards. Poetry, people read it by themselves, and so I can be really political, and I can be really honest, and I don't have to repeat lines, and I don't have to figure out how the music's going to work. And the process of putting a song out there's so many checkpoints. There's like, okay, I got the lyrics. Okay, cool. Is the melody good enough? Is the song good enough? Okay, cool. Did the recording come out good enough? Did we figure out how to portray it? Okay, cool. Now does this song translate live and inspire people? So you have like four steps. With words and with poetry, I can just write it and find my best stuff, slap it together, $2 a book to put it out. It's inexpensive. It's so direct. It's so direct. And it, and so, and also, when I'm in the van, I can write and read and write and think, and I can do that. So I have a lot of journals and writing that no one's ever seen that if I spent some time putting it together, I could put out another chat book, which I plan on doing, but I'm just, I don't have any time right now, but um, I will soon. So I think that's really what it came down to. It was like I was waiting to put this record out, and I had all this stuff that wasn't going to be used, and I like felt strongly and... I felt so powerless. I felt so helpless with this, not just the election, but in general, the more you know, the more helpless you feel. And like, how do you fight apathy? Yeah. And how do you, it, yeah, you need to resist, but you also need to assist. Because I believe like the biggest activists in this country are teachers who take a $25,000 a year salary and they directly connect with the children who are cool. They do not understand any of this. All this white supremacy, all of this um, hate. This is the last gasping, dying halitosis breath of the uh, of of old people, and they're gonna die soon. And the young people are gonna be there, and they're gonna be like, I don't understand what the big deal is about. You know, these bathrooms. Like, I look at a woman and I see another person. Yeah. I don't understand. Hopefully, at least most of them are gonna be that way. Yeah, I know, you, because it's learned. Yeah. And that is scary. But it's also minority viewpoint. There, most it people, is, yeah. Most people, it's overrepresented. And, and, and anytime you cerebralize an issue, you get down a wormhole, right? So a lot of the 
nonsensical conservative thinking is like an argument that happens in when we're talking about it. But when you go to work and you talk to someone who's completely different from you, it's not long before you all that sheds. Yeah. And most people that hold these viewpoints are very isolated. So to me, it's like it works on a, a cerebral level. We can have all these conversations that don't matter. But when you get down to like, I'm going to go hang out at the coffee shop and I see somebody and we have a conversation, you, none of that stuff even matters. It doesn't play in. So truly, when it comes down to it, it's a minority viewpoint and it has to go. Yeah. And the media is trying so hard to brainwash everybody. But the problem now is that we have podcasts. Like you can have a conversation and you can put it out and you can reach people. And I, with, even with my music, I can reach an audience and I don't need to go through normal avenues to do that. You can just go direct. And, and that is the democratization of information. And there will always be forces trying to control and the, and the whole assisting is weeding the garden. We're going back to God coming down, like weeding us out like randomly, but yeah. we can weed the garden as a society. We can say, hey, you know, these politicians have to go. It's scary. They do not like people for every measure that the internet has done good to give information. We have now fake news and propaganda flooding those same avenues. And so it's really up to teachers and people with children to teach critical thinking, to teach kindness, to teach empathy, and um, and to teach how race is a, as a construct. It doesn't exist. It exists only in the minds of people trying to oppress other people to get a leg up, and it can't last. It can't. So when you write poetry, is this often weighing on your mind? Is this... My, you should see my journals. Yeah. Yeah, my journals are all other people copied and pasted. <laughs> and, and then I'll just have like a moment where I like have a morning, I wake up and I like smoke pot or something and I'm like fresh and I'll just freak out <laughs> and like write a poem and then that's it. Or like I'll have a, I had started doing this um, Facebook threads where I ask questions because I was really into Socrates for a second. And Socrates used to go out into the public yeah, forum. Debates. Back, yes. Back when mysticism was the prevailing ideology, so everybody was, um, there was no science or like, that hadn't happened yet. And he would go out in the public forum and he would just ask people questions and he would discover their underlying assumptions. And so in all of the fighting and the rhetoric, I was like, I'm just going to ask questions and see where this goes. And so I started asking these questions that I can't answer and it's it was always really focused on these gray areas where I knew everybody. And people would just alarmingly, I would get f tons of comments and so much insight and personal stories. And and you'd have a troll here and there. And I would like, you know, be like, my thread. And like, you know, <laughs> yeah, get my. It's pretty easy to weed those people out. Yeah, weeding the garden. We would weed the garden, but also questioning them because those are the guys you really want to question because we don't often hear, they don't get questioned in, in, in a, sensible way. There's We come back with anger. And I understand that because I'm a very angry person deep down in my core. Every day a discipline to not be angry. Um, that was my big Saturn returns, you know, the end of your 20s or something. I don't know, astrology. I don't, I don't do the astrology thing. I just listen to my friends tell me about how I am and I go, yeah, that's right. 
Um, That's the funnest part of uh, horoscopes is just somebody seems like they know a lot about it, just yeah. telling you about <laughs> your yeah, personality. Yeah, about who I am. I'm like, yes, yeah. I am. I'm like that. How did you know? It's so cool. <laughs> There's a good living to be made there. I know, I know. Ability. I know. So, yeah. I guess I don't know if that all goes back to anything, but uh, that's my random ramblings. But yeah, no, but just asking poetry questions. Poetry is, yeah, you, with poetry, yeah. you seem to be asking questions. That's kind of where it falls for you. Totally. I'm asking questions, and when people give me answers, the many, many answers, trying to fit that into something that's kind of like a picture of it. And that's psychic vampire. It's not one person. No one person is that horrible. No. But it's a picture of all of us and our worst selves. And myself isn't always, in all the songs, even when I'm being mean, even when I'm scolding, like a lot of times I'm just yelling at myself, like, why can't I be different? Why can't I change yeah. this? There's often going to be a piece of the songwriter in the song, even if it's directed towards, you know, whoever. Yeah, I'm projecting my own self onto everybody else. But also I'm trying to relate. Hopefully I'm doing that. Sometimes I think I feel that it works every time somebody's like, you know, I, I really like that song or I relate to that. And so that's what keeps me going and um, keep, you know, fighting apathy. So It's important work. I feel that it's important. I feel there are people doing much more important things than I'm doing. <laughs> but maybe that's just because I've been like brainwashed to think that you should hate your job, which you shouldn't. Even if you have to have like four jobs you kind of hate and then do them only for like four hours a week, which I think is the millennial solution. We're that's, like, I'm working on that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you. Uh, I think what you do, I mean, making music an artistic expression being an artist, that's the last thing that machines can't do. A lot of those boring, menial, one-task-every-day jobs, those are going to be replaced by automation. Can I say one more thing yes. about that? Go ahead. I heard this from Elaine de Baton, so it's not my idea, but I've been saying this every four days to people. If we are becoming a more efficient society, if robots are now able to do the work of mass production of mostly goods to be consumed, which is actually something we should figure out. If robots can do it and we're becoming a more efficient society, why do we need unemployment rates to go up? If they're going down naturally, isn't it a sign that our society is changing and that we need to figure out another way because it doesn't work anymore because we don't need people to work? So yeah. maybe we should be like the French and we should take a freaking month off in the summer. Maybe we shouldn't take advantage of our time and we should work more efficiently. Um, and if in that process people are left behind, then I think we should take care of those people because they'll find a way to survive. And going back to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, the lengths that we would go to to survive, we don't want to impress that on anybody. And I see, like, these tent cities and the homeless population. Yeah, Seattle is... Got that going on. Portland? Yeah, oh, Portland Nashville. too. Nashville's got, getting that too oh, now, yeah. huh? yeah. We have a, um, a place on Ellington Parkway that goes right into the city where there's tent cities. It's everywhere. And there are people being left out, and you cannot... It's just, it's just too self-righteous to think that a system that leaves that many people out, no system is going to work for everybody. And we have to take care of the sick, and we have to take care of the poor. Um, and it's just something that has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, it breeds malcontent. It breeds problems 
for everybody. And you're not safe if you don't take care of everybody. It's vibe and safety. <laughs> Going back it's to not the, just for tourists. Mm-mm, not just for tours, it's for life. All right, I think we'll end on that. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. That was amazing. I'm so grateful she took the time to come over and talk with me. As you heard, she had a lot to say, a lot on her mind, and I think it really shows in her lyrics, too. There's some some deep insights in there. All right, um, so if you liked this episode of Talking About the Passion, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Leave us a review as well. We always really appreciate feedback. Sign up for the Niagara Moon mailing list to keep tabs on the podcast and on Niagara Moon. You can just go to niagaramoonmusic.com, scroll down, and enter in your email address. Find the podcast on Facebook at Talking About the Passion. I'm also on Twitter at TATP Podcast and on Instagram at Niagara Moon Music. If you would like to write to me, you can email tatppodcast at gmail.com. The theme song for Talking About the Passion is now the Niagara Moon song Eating Peaches off my 2017 album Eating Peaches. Okay, I got all my plugs out of the way, so let's listen to another Tristan song. This is uh, the one we were discussing in depth during the interview. It's called Psychic Vampire. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you next Wednesday.
Lonely destroyer